Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Tonari's podcast. We're just about to go into chat with our latest guest. The one and only Philly McMahon, and we're up here in Fingless at the moment. But before we do, we want to say a special thank you to Cahal Heenan of Mainua. Thanks, Cahal, for the, the website. It looks fantastic. It's very easy to work. So that's Mainua, available at mainua.com for any of your app or website needs. Link in description. Thanks, Cahal. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by local entrepreneur Danny O'Donovan of QuickMinutes.com. Quick Minutes is a specialized meeting management application that streamlines the administrative process in running a meeting. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Tonari's podcast. And this week we are on the road with Unity Media Network. I am your host, James Leonard, joined by my co-host. Timmy. Um, we are on the road. We are in the big smoke. We are in B27 gym in Finglas with the one and only Philly McMahon. How are we keeping Philly? I'm great. Thanks for uh, traveling up. Yeah, no, yeah, no, Jesus, we were delighted uh, that you accept, accepted to come on. I know you're a very busy man. You have a lot, of, a lot going on, and uh, we're really humbled that you'd actually come on the show. Um, I was very excited to to meet you. We've been in correspondence for a few yeah. months, but alas, over lockdown, stuff was put on hold. So finally, we get to meet. It's great to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, you're from Ballymun. Am, we're not yeah. far from Ballymun here. No, no. no. Um, can you tell us a little about where you're from and what it was yeah. like growing up? Um, so I suppose I'll start from where a lot of people kind of will probably think of the area as a an area that has a lot of crime and drugs and uh, problems and you know they're not wrong um, but there's a huge amount of really good stuff in the area but I'll start from I suppose um, when I grew up in Ballymun it was a special community to me it gave me and shaped me all, all I have and if you were to ask me um, you know, if you were to redo it all over again, would you would you prefer to live maybe in a different community, maybe an upper class uh, community that had twelve bedrooms in a house, or would you live in your flat in Ballymun? I wouldn't have changed it. So for me, uh, as I said, it gave me a lot of gifts. The, the community of Ballymun gave me a lot of gifts and a lot of life skills growing up. So when I grew up in Ballymun, the community had a huge amount of issues with the drug epidemic, especially heroin. Unfortunately, my brother fell into that pathway. I would say sport was my savior. Uh, playing uh, soccer and GAA uh, certainly gave me a focus, and the energy, I, the negative energy I had, I suppose, was funneled into that. And obviously, with the with the drug epidemic that Ballymun had and the country had, you know, we didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, our, our government didn't know how to deal with it. Probably still don't today, but. Um, you know, crime came with that. So, and, and that's why the, the, the area has a huge amount of stigma and shame around it. It's why young kids in the area would struggle with uh, their uh, self-belief, self-esteem, confidence. And uh, it's probably why uh, over years that the drug culture and the crime culture hasn't changed in the area because it's generational and mm-hmm. the trauma is still in the area. And uh, unfortunately, um, when you do 100 things good for the area, it just takes one bad thing uh, to change that, 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 that good thing, that, the good things that have been done, the positive things that have been done. Yeah, sounds a lot like where we're from, Timmy, doesn't it? Yeah, um, it's pretty much the same. It, it, like myself and James, we grew up in an area called Nakamahini, Cork City. And there's, it's the exact same as you just stated. You know, there's a lot of good things going on up there. There's a lot of great people up there. But when something really bad happens, it's like it's actually it's it's expected mm. because of the area, you know. So 
we can de- definitely identify yeah, with that. Like put it in context, the young offenders is based on yeah. where we're from, <laughs> but we do not like act like anything like the young offenders, <laughs> yeah. you know. But uh, some people say it adds to the stigma. Others say it's a bit of fun. That's yeah, the same debate. Adam and Paul, the film. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And this is a debate for another podcast. Yeah. But um, mm-hmm. just to kind of show the parallels between where you're from and where we're from, Trinity College Dublin have a deprivation index freely available online. It's an Excel document. And they have like um, the deprivation in Ireland is scored on Pubble Maps and shows all the statistics. The top two are in Ballymun, the mm-hmm. most deprived areas. And then number three is Nafnahini. And then in the other, the rest of the time. So you're telling me you're posher than me because <laughs> I'm from, from Valley This is a Cork Dublin thing yeah, now, is yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, and then you like so my Ross, and I know. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. there's lots of parallels to be drawn, and it's mm. about it's just generations of social policy and I suppose um, structures that create uh, problems in these communities, like in our community pile of uh, social housing. Um, originally sent into an area with no services similar to Ballymun yeah yeah uh, Ballymun was developed because the overcrowded tenements in the inner city and they the government said like you know this is a a great initiative there's going to be uh, accommodation for 20 odd thousand people and they basically pushed everybody out to this community which is a brilliant location between the airport and the inner city a beautiful complex beautiful took from the, the, the design took from a an estate in Germany and they didn't uh, I suppose align the amenities uh, that were needed for, for those the, the people that actually were from the inner city coming out so and what happened then which which is not an awful lot of people know which is which is crazy to think there was a there was a lot of people that moved out of the area when Ballymun was developed and a lot of the people that were left there were people with uh, mental health issues psychiatric issues and that trauma uh, definitely was generational and passed down. Uh, and that's why Ballymun became a very lucrative area for drug dealers because you've got all this, th- th- you've got a huge amount of this community struggling with trauma and their solution to overcome that trauma was take drugs. So a very smart move. I don't know if, if it just organically happened with drug dealers in the area that went or did they cop. The Ballymun had people that were really struggling mentally. Let's target it, that area and let's make a lot of money from it. But that's essentially what happened. And that hasn't changed. It's crazy to think that that was in the, you know, the 80s and the, the late 80s and early 90s. And it's, it, it kind of really hit. That was when that was kind of the epic of when it hit. hit but it had been building up over, you know, the 70s and 80s and whatever, like um, into the rave scenes and stuff like that. But nothing has changed yeah people always ask me what what's the difference now um you, you would think that the government look at a community that has struggled for so many years and would would intervene because it would save so much money for the, the exchequer nothing has, nothing has changed yeah I, I think um one striking difference between Ballymun and where we're from and Cork in general we didn't have the heroin epidemic what you had like heroin came into Dublin late 70s, early 80s, same time hit Manchester, Liverpool. And there's a lot of social context why that happened, um, not least poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, in Cork, we we avoided that. It was only around 2004, 2005, when heroin really hit Cork. I remember being in Cork prison 2006, I'd say, and there was a handful of us on heroin. And 2007, there was a handful not on heroin. That's how quickly it came into Cork. And that devastated yeah. the community. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was very, very hard to accept because, and um, my first introduction to heroin was would have been in a, a treatment center at the age of sixteen in France, and I seen um, people addicted to heroin come in from countries like Italy and Spain, being driven there by their family members, you know, and being left there, you know, on the way in the journey to the, the centre in France, they'd be given whatever drugs they need just to get them on the journey, you know. And they'd come into the centre then and there'd be two of us to look after them and to just to show them around the place. But they'd be stoned, completely stoned still. And after a while, when they're coming down off the heroin, you'd see some of the things that happened like really kind of frightened me. Like, for, uh, for example, there was just one female she offered me and another guy that was looking after her 
sex mm. to be able to get more drugs, you know. And when I see in that at a young age what heroin could possibly do to somebody, it frightened me. And there was another guy as well that died from um, cold turkey of heroin. Mm. He wasn't getting any methadone or any uh, form of medication to come off the heroin. He was just complete cold turkey with uh, a form of uh, medicine, a horrible medicine that we were giving him. And I really, really got scared of it, right? It wa heroin wasn't in Cork at this stage. This was early, the early 90s, mid 90s. And but it came in then in 2004. Um, I seen it. I would have been addicted to the cocaine mm. and alcohol and tablets at the time. You know, um, Timmy would be slightly older generation. Mm -hmm. To me, I like to remind him. <laughs> but uh, myself and Timmy's brothers would have been a little bit younger. Okay. And we kind of got caught. With, yeah, with, with the heroin, you know. Mm, yeah. Now, there's a lot of people watch our show, um, have family members and heroin, and there's a fair stigma to it, as you know. Um, can you explain what it's like, or can you identify with those people and maybe give them some words of you know, comfort or encouragement? Or? Yeah. I think the big problem with the stigma is the policy, you know, that. Uh, it's evident now that people from working class communities are getting a little bit more educated because there's pathways being set out for them, like you used to and me. We're setting path pathways out for the next generation to you know, go and go to university, become more educated, and challenge the standards of your culture. And the problem now is that, um, like the 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 the, the policy makers in the country are are kind of going, well, we've never been challenged like this before. So when we see that there's a huge correlation between people that struggle with drugs or addiction um, is due to mental health, well, then we must treat it as a mental health mm. issue. So if we don't change uh, from a legalize, we don't, we don't, I don't mean we have to legalize it, but we can decriminalize it like other countries have done it. And when we break down that, you know, that guy there is struggling with heroin, um, but it's not against the law. He's just got mental health issues. Well, then we can start to change that stigma. There's, there's, there's a, there's a doctor, Sharon Lambert. You, you probably came across. She's on the podcast last week. Is she? Yeah, She's yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Really good. Yeah. Uh, really, uh, really interesting in, in our, in what she's doing. Um, work wise, uh, um, research wise. But she had a, a study uh, out. I think it was last year, the year before, and it was about. Um, the the effects of families um, from a drug and alcohol related death, and she spoke about a family, um, a story that she she uh, took from a girl that basically her her brother had been a, was a heroin addict and um, sat down one night with with her and her mom and said, "Mom, you won't have to worry about me anymore. Everything will be all right." And he went up upstairs and and didn't wake up the next day, committed suicide. Uh, and, and that was obviously due to this, 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 you know, this shame and stigma. Mm -hmm. That there's a huge amount of, especially heroin addicts, that will get to that point where they'll think that they've lost all self-worth and that it's better off than not, than not hearing this. They're letting people down all the time. And that's not what, like, we need to, as a society, what we need is we need to, people that struggle with addiction, especially heroin addiction and other drug addictions, alcohol, whatever it may be, that we need to keep them on the planet long enough for them to hit rock bottom to ultimately make the decision to come off drugs. We, as a society, will ultimately not have the power to make somebody come off drugs. They have to want it themselves, but we need to have the support there for them. So that, I suppose, is why we have the stigma and shame. Years and years of being passed down that it's, it's wrong to take drugs, it's against the law, so treat people really bad. And ultimately, um, when someone goes on that cycle of smoking, cannabis, ecstasy, cocaine, crack cocaine possibly, heroin addiction, to being a functional addict, to being on the streets, being a homeless addict, to end up in prison because of that, to feed that 20 to 30,000 euro uh, habit a year, that, you know, there has to be a better process to that. You know, why have we not, as a, as a country, not looked at saving, even if, if you don't care that you haven't got a family member or you haven't been in that situation, why haven't we as a, as a, as a, as a government, as a country, looked at it and said, for every euro we spend on that young person, we're going to save four euro. You know, like, why? why? And, and that's where my head is spinning. 
you know is there too much money spinning around like the guards have a really hard job especially i see up in here in dublin you would have seen the series um around the k even yeah. having the name the k is just a, it's, it's it's a really bad yeah. name to stigmatize mm. a community but they are really under resourced but i think the guards when the 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 the, the kinahan hutch feuds kicked off i think there was, there was 60 million euro worth of overtime spent in that area of uh our, our exchequer like you know 60 million extra for for extra time for overtime sorry for guards so there's so much of this money spinning around that you have to question you know who makes these decisions that could we be spending all the money we incarcerate prisoners for uh you know uh having you know being being um imprisoned or incarcerated for having personal use of drugs and they say the, 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 they'll say there's, there's not many there's 16,000 incidents of it right but can we put that money into the health system because it's a, it's a mental health issue yeah and we've, we, 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 we definitely have troubles with our, with our healthcare system so we need more money in that area in anyway but our courts will be less full you know our, our prisons will, will definitely be more you know we, we'll only have drug dealers in prisons because Instead of focusing on pe people with personal use of drugs because decriminalized, we will be focusing on people selling the drug. The guards will be focusing on drug dealers. Yeah. They've and done they that. Will be doing the prisons. They've actually done that in Portugal. Yeah. They've decriminalized personal use. If mm. someone's caught with uh, drugs that are for personal use on mm. them, um, they're, they're left go. Mm. You know, but if yeah. they're caught with a large quantity, and I think actually Sharon Lambert stated this um, uh, in the podcast that. Their their death rate from people having overdoses and stuff for one year in the whole of Portugal was two people, mm. you know, like, and, and, and the, the amount, and we have over one a day, yeah, yeah. and the Go amount on. of money that they saved from bringing people through the courts and everything else associated mm. with people getting arrested and brought to court, they were able to pump back into the system and help people with. Uh, recovery and, and all these other things just to get yeah, there's, pr there's pros and cons to it and, and like in everything in terms of when you change something so big in terms of a culture there's pros and cons to it and people will say oh yeah like I mean decriminalization is a kind of a buzzword and it gets the it gets the topic out there it gets a narrative out there it gets people speaking about addiction which doesn't really happen otherwise in the media um, because not an awful lot of people like speaking about it not a lot of people like coming out and speaking so what you are doing is amazing like coming out and speaking about your issues that you've had in the past and helping others look and go there's two lads that have changed and went through adversity and look what they're doing now like that's what we need them peer guidance pathways but ultimately what Portugal done really well was that they put a multidisciplinary approach around decriminalization so as you said the money they were spending on incriminating people they were actually putting in to helping them and put into the healthcare system. So if you were caught with personal use, you were brought to a dissuasion committee in, a, in an office block and not a guard station. You're brought in, you sit in front of, which I've been in for, uh, one of the meetings, the guy sits in front of the, the, the health uh, expert and basically says, have you got a problematic drug issue? And he says, yes, okay. You're gonna get a fine. Um, it's a small fine, but you're gonna be given the opportunity to go to rehab. Right now, it's still the, the, the big problem we have is people get mixed up with legalization and decriminalization. So I've been on uh, TV and media, wherever, and, and people have said it'll open the floodgates if you decriminalize drugs. No, it won't. And, and let's let's be honest, the floodgates are already opened. They are already opened with the tortoiseest overdose rate in Europe per capita. We're a quite small population in, in terms of countries in Europe, and yet we're the third highest, right? And we're spending millions upon millions uh, with the policies we've had in the past. And yes, it's great that we are a little bit ahead of where we were a couple of years ago and that it's a health-led approach. But the problems we have is that we are still stigmatizing people. So still there's people that are struggling with drugs that are taking their own lives because of the stigma and the shame. And the problem that we have is that the money is still circulating in areas that it shouldn't be. So for me, when we look at Portugal, there's a lot of good things. But ultimately, if we want to to impact uh, this the, this drug trade in the country, we need to devalue it. We devalue it by decriminalizing it. 
um you know it's one of those things that it, it, maybe you have experienced that when it's against the law sometimes it makes you want to go and get it you know but the other side of it is it's not going to open the floodgates cocaine is normalized now in all social classes um weed and hash the same thing um heroin is it, not really normalized because it's seen as the dirtiest drug out of them all like but we still have a huge amount of people taking it yeah. so and, and it starts off where you're based so you're talking about earlier on cork only hitting only hitting cork a, a lot later than dublin just imagine cork is a city and it's only been hit in 2004 other counties are not going to be hit with it so only now kilkenny are getting hit with it really hard mm-hmm. other count like i've went to tyrone ga clubs and they're saying philly can you come up and talk in the ga club because we've caught two of our players taking cocaine in the toilet i'm like she's that's so small compared to what we've experienced but isn't it great that clubs are already thinking of getting to that level of being proactive and getting people to come out and talk about yeah. it because that's what's needed yeah i think as well for a lot of the people watching they might know some of the terms we're using so legalization means drugs are legal to the point like tobacco is legal and alcohol is legal yeah. decriminalization the drugs are still illegal mm. it's just the person that's using them is not sent to court they're sent is it's addressed as a health issue yeah and they go before social workers or doctors or whatever yeah, they deal with the person's issues rather than the addiction. Exactly. And we got to kind sense, of, yeah. like, I want to give credit to Senator Lynn Rand because she does mm. a lot of work. Like, she's a represent. Like, I see her as a representative of our area too mm. because she speaks for working class people uh, unlike anybody else, you know what I mean? And uh, she drives stuff in the Senate around decriminalization, around spent conviction, stuff that's very dear to our heart. Um, and, like, what's your thoughts on Ireland's policy of decriminalization for the first two offenses let me put this in the context mm. I, I could pick up two convictions in the one day philly mm. and then after that normal service is resumed so in ireland going forward it'll be if you were caught for drugs for possession uh post possession you will get the decriminalization thing where you go to a um, brief intervention mm. kind of a health-led approach for the first offense and the second three strike policy but then on the third you're gone that's yeah. brilliant if you're a student in Trinity or UCC you get caught with a bit of weed or a bit of hash twice yeah. and you'll get out of it without a conviction. But for a drug addict or a chronic drug user around here or in Cork, it's not really relevant, is it? Well, the question is, when have you seen somebody that struggled with drug addiction ever stop taking after three? You know, yeah. so it makes absolutely no sense. Absolutely no sense. So I was a part of help create awareness for the public consultation when it first started off with, with uh, Minister Catherine Bourne. So she asked me to come in and build the awareness of the campaign for the public consultation. So I went in uh, and I said a piece. And I actually, do you know what? It was the first time I actually broke down in front of an audience because I spoke about the embarrassment I had of walking by my brother. And uh, it never really hit me. It hit me really bad then. And I actually started crying in front of everybody. Lynn was there. Lynn Ryan was there. And um, and I was like, you know, on the I'm a man, I shouldn't really cry out there. But I was like, do you know what? At least these people sitting in front of me who who are a huge amount of stakeholders in the in the in this area will respect that I you know, I'm somebody that's dealt through the, losing a loved one through addiction. And what happened after that was just so frustrating for me because a working group was set up. So um you you got everybody, the twenty odd thousand people filled out the consultation. I believe, I believe now, I don't know if this is a fact, a huge amount uh, was pro-decriminalization, right? Um, And the chairperson of that working group who was was a judge came out with the report after and said, we're going to come out with this new policy. It's a three-trike policy. And uh, some of the article that he came out with some of the stuff in the article that came out was just mind-boggling for me he said actually it's better for you to go to prison because you get recovery you'll go into recovery in there i couldn't get my head around i, I kind of said to myself have you ever have you ever been in prison I've ever seen what happens in prison i've i've lads in my course in mount joy who've never took drugs before they went to prison and ended up in, on drugs in there and he also said then that they had a guy come over don't quote me on this i think from colorado and he was an expert in legalization of drugs when they legalized marijuana and straight away i kind of said to myself who was talking about legalization here we were talking about decriminalization mm-hmm. so he mixed that up like, yeah. and i was like 
how could you make that mistake? Yeah, like? it's a big, big, big difference. And what it what it does is in the media when you have somebody talking about legalization, society just pricks their ears and go, "Oh, you're right." There's a judge speaking about legalization. But hold on, we weren't talking about that. Yeah. We were talking about decriminalization. Yeah. So when you talk about a three-strike policy, the first question I'd have is, when has somebody ever stopped taking drugs after three warnings? When their family has tried to take, tell them to stop taking drugs all their lives. I've, I, yeah. I used to use tough love, thinking that that would be the big thing that my brother would stop taking drugs. I'd ignore him in the street. It was the opposite that was needed. I needed the be there and say, John, when you decide to come off drugs, I'll be there for you. I'll be the brother. But I was taught to use love, one of the most powerful things we have as human beings. I thought love was the one thing that was going to get him off drugs. When I didn't realize how potent and how strong this little substance was. Yeah. And people that don't take drugs don't understand that. I never took a drug in my life in terms of uh, legal drugs, but but I, I, I understand it from having a family member. And you know, anybody that's taken drugs will understand how powerful that is. You know, so for me, we have people making decisions that probably haven't been involved enough in the area. I think, you know, I really do. I, I think, and if you think of all the people that have struggled with drugs or the family members have have struggled with that that whole experience, we don't really have enough of them making decisions in the hierarchy of this country in terms of the political world. You know, we'll have probably people in the political world have said that they've smoked a joint or whatever else. But how many do we have up there that have went through the process that these people that are the most vulnerable people in society that are on the streets because of the heroin addiction, how many of those do we actually speak for? Lynn Ruan would be a prime example that we would, I would buzz when I hear that speak, you know? Yeah. Um, but we don't have enough at the top, you know? Yeah, but even like when I normally was getting myself sorted, I wanted to, I wanted to get a job where I could help people, you know, and give mm -hmm. back. So I done that and I was working in addiction service, homeless services in Cork. But I felt I was only, I was, I wasn't having enough of an impact, you know. Like maybe help somebody, give them a cup of tea, uh, link them in with support. So I wanted to do more. So I think, like what you're saying there, is I'm trying to move into the policy space now, you know. I'm writing theses and doing PhDs and trying to do the podcast and like we're trying to set the, we're trying to have our voice and yeah. the agenda now. Do you know what I mean? You can't be making policies that impact us without us having our input. We can't have our input, as I see it, helping an individual person. You know, we can have it by broadcasting it on YouTube, writing research, mm. because governments, everything has to be evidence-based, you know what I mean? Mm. To have credibility, you have to have qualifications and all these things, you know. You, so. need, you need a group of people that have gone down that road, lived their life, had the experience, come together, that are doing very, very well to build a policy. You know, not people that have no experience what it's like to grow up in poverty, to grow up in areas where drugs are the norm, prison is the norm. You know, we need people making policies that have gone through it and know what people are suffering in these poverties and these areas like Ballymun, Knocknahini, Myros, wherever. There's areas like that all over the country. We need people our own people just to listen to this podcast yeah. people that have authority they've built up they're educated they get into the positions where we can change these policies and look after people instead of putting them into a corner like you're somebody in school and, and you're a nuisance put from years ago putting them in the corner and leaving them there what we're doing is putting them into prisons and leaving them there and it's just coming back and back and back yeah you know, it, it, that's the way it has been for, for for me, my own family. Like it's just, yeah. it's um. Well, it's we, sad. Think, we think we think these yeah. things are filters, you know, in society. Like we think school is a is a really good filter, you know, that we develop skills. Uh, let's say from school that feeds us in a certain direction in life, you know, and that's the pathway we've we've been dealt with. Like you know, um, but when you grow up in a a working class community you start off on a un, uneven playing field right because you're given a lot less so when you start when you start off living in a you're born in a an upper class middle class background you start a little bit you know you have a head start because you're not dealt with um poverty poverty you know being the big thing and we don't realize how much poverty there is actually in the in, in this country like I always say, me, yeah, and I got this from a friend of mine, Trina uh, O'Connor, 
was a criminologist and she made me think about this one day about my dad uh, my dad died of cancer in uh, 2018 and he never had he didn't have private insurance so he uh my dad was born in west belfast shot in the stomach at 16 joined the provisional ira uh, escaped prison in Newry, and then uh went on the run came to ballymon and that's where I came, and I bec- and I become an all Ireland winner and everything else, and it's just it's crazy kind of coincidence what's had to happen. You could have but easily conflict. You could have easily grown up in the north and become a provo. Yeah, yeah, but it's just it's it's crazy to think his conflict was the troubles, yeah. you know, fighting for the Catholic uh, communities um, in where he was from, and for the, the struggle of uh, you know wanting United Ireland and my that them values have you know, rubbed off on me and my conflict is poverty. You know, I want to try bridge that social inequality gap. Um, but the, you know, for me, like it's, it's, it's so important that we realize that, um, the trauma we have, you know, can shape us so, so much like, you know, so if we don't get to the root cause, uh, first of all, of the trauma in these communities, well, then there's no point in changing policy. So there's two ends to the spectrum. You know, mm-hmm. um, policy is one end, uh, culture of communities is the other end, you know, so yeah. we need to look at the two ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Can I ask you uh, to talk a little bit about the stuff, the work you do in prisons yeah. and your halftime talk with mm-hmm. young people? Yeah, so um, we're talking about that spectrum uh, and I believe what I want to do, what the purpose I've been given from, I suppose, the energy I've got from speaking about my brother's addiction which fell out of my mouth after an All-Ireland semi-final. A uh, fellow I was marking said, your brother's a junkie and he died from a drug overdose and had the best game of my life. Uh, That's career. actually despicable to hear that. Yeah, but, uh, you know... It just shows the lack of understanding as well. That's, that's there. Yeah, but, uh, you know, in my head, I was like, you had to go that level to get... A, get you you know, know you're I, winning. I have you, you yeah. know, so I'd... Ne- I'd you know... I don't know, but it's not and easy in him, no. <laughs> <to be> honest, <laughs> like, well, look, at know, the, that's the, just me personally. Yeah, then. we all make mistakes, uh, you yeah, know. So do, I believe he made a mistake that day uh, because I had a really good game, you yeah, know, and I, and I got man the match that day. I uh, scored more than him, and I'm a defender. He's a forward. But we all make mistakes. And <laughs> um, for me, I spoke about that after the game. Uh, I was that angered. But the response I got was amazing, which gave me a purpose to go, do you know what? This is something... Really, I can latch on to in terms of life, not just about business or all Ireland's or, you know, cars or houses, whatever it is. It's about a purpose in life. And I was very lucky at that age to be able to to get that. Yeah. You know, not many people get at that age to develop a purpose in life. So uh, it started off with like, okay, there's so many people want me to talk about this. What, how do I get it out there? And I set up a pilot scheme in 2012 to help high-risk youths and drug addicts. Um, and people that were on the social welfare for longer than a year, and that went really well. And that kind of uh, the the following year, actually, the social the social uh, aspect of our country got privatized. Uh, the funding was cut in the social programming, and and we lost our partner who funded the course. So I said, you know what? I'm not going to let this kind of affect this kind of uh, project I was running. I'm going to go off and set up a charity. So I went out and reached out to uh, somebody who had a really big network of very successful people in different areas. And we got 13 people on this board, set up a charity, took us two years to develop it. And that's when we developed Halftime Talk, the charity. So anybody that was looking for information uh, or support, which was a huge amount, I'm sure you get it as well, it was funneled into Halftime Talk. And to get it out there even further, I said, right, I'm going to do a book because there's still people asking about it. So we put all the story into the book, The Choice, and then I wanted to challenge the policy of the country, so I developed the, the, the we've done the documentary, The Hardest Hit. And so so that was just getting it out there, using my sport and profile to, to try impact that kind of area. And we're talking, when I was telling you about the spectrum, there's three parts I want to challenge. Uh, Mount Joy, uh, we developed a program, a leadership program in Mount Joy called the Unfucked Movement. And it's spelled U-N-F-U-C-C-C-K-D. And the three C's stand for change, culture, community. So we wanted to get these lads and we wanted to mold and take out the leadership qualities they had within them 
and first of all use the community of prison to mold and to develop basically and in Mountjoy prison you have the main jail and you have the progression unit which is quite new anybody that wants to change they basically put their hands up if they have a drug problem they go through the detox unit and they come up to the to the progression unit and it's a much better place to do your time culturally no violence absolutely no violence you know a lot of bitching no violence yeah. compared to the main jail uh drugs yes there is drugs uh never get rid of drugs in prisons you know they have to manage it a little bit better but much less drugs up here than there is down there and uh i wanted to shine a light on that you know that there's really good stuff happening up here and this is amazing for a prison setting culturally so we developed the leadership program and basically the leadership program is is getting these lads to you know not take drugs uh develop all the life skills and to get other people and pass that on to emerging leaders keep passing that on so it's peer guidance it's it's what you are doing it's it's using people's stories and examples to pass it on to the next people coming through and saying this is the better way of doing time and when they reintegrate into society then that they do the same in their communities that they actually you know they're they're shown by example of this is what not to do because this is the way you'll end up and that's what i had when john when when i had the pathway with john seeing the pain and suffering he had as a drug a drug addict and i didn't want to go that way so telling our kids over generations don't take drugs because it'll kill you hasn't worked yeah. how many times do kids here nowadays don't take drugs it'll kill you and they've took drugs and they're going you're full of shit i've took drugs and i'm not dead yeah right so the message has to change it has to be we have to show the pain and suffering because that's that's how i went to do it away so using the guys in prison when they get out of the unfucked movement into into their communities that they basically uh, are role models to the, the next generation of emerging leaders so that's what we're trying to do so we're developing a group of people together we've a sociologist a criminologist uh sharon lambert is actually yeah. in the group um and we're we're linking in with ibm and we're basically going into prison we're going to extract the stories and the experiences from prisoners and get the red flags along the way and then we're going to go into communities and we're going to look at young kids that have the similar red flags and then we're going to go back to the government or somebody and we're going to say we know that this kid is highly likely going to end up like him it's going to cost this amount of money give us that money let's intervene and let's see can we change that that, that pathway so what you're doing there is changing generational cycles and you're saving the country millions mm. absolutely millions and you also have to realize the the impact of the victims that we'll have less in society so someone murdering somebody the 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 trauma families go through because of that the 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 person that murdered somebody hit their family the person that was murdered their family the community it just it's so big and and we could have stopped that potentially at a very young age yeah it's very exciting it's mm. very exciting to think about that's that's a fantastic thing yeah. you're doing there mm. i wonder would we get it in cork look yeah if not? it works yeah, yeah. If, 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 if you think about it if we had let's say nine kids we've known let's say six primary schools in ballymon and there was one kid in each of those schools that had a thing called aces adverse childhood mm. experiences which you might know yeah. about if they four plus aces we know that they're gonna highlight there's a good chance they're gonna go down the pathway of drugs crime maybe have a child at a very young age um have mental health issues now if we intervene right what we what we stopping we are stopping uh victims in society we're stopping drug taking we're preventing mental health issues we're preventing uh people going to to prison and child detention centers which cost us millions and essentially what we're doing is we're changing the country the culture of the country you know that's the big yeah. thing can you tell the people watching how much it costs to keep a young person in Town for a year yeah so so Oberstown was developed because the progression unit in mount joy used to be st pat's was the child detention center now they've changed that over to the the healthcare system so they were basically like can't deal with kids under 18 in the criminal justice system we'll change it to the mental uh, the the healthcare system so that's been changed over and they developed this facility called Oberstown, and it's uh based in county, north county dublin and it's a 22 million euro running facility a year 22 million to the exchequer right and that breaks down to every young person that goes through that process it's three hundred forty thousand euro a year now employees of Oberstown won't like me saying that because they do great work mm-hmm. right but I went out and I said to the guys what's the difference between this and prison they have cells 
you know, um, and, and let me make this point. This is very clear as well uh, that I have to make clear that there is a point for young under 18, under 18s to go to detention centers. There is, you have to be, there has to be some, I don't have another answer to that. If someone said, well, what's the, if you don't have Oberstown, what's the answer? It should be the last resort, you know, when it's a really, really bad crime, they should end up in, in, in something like that. But there's a huge amount of kids ending up in there that prison life becomes normalized. So a guy said to me, I said to him, he says, we're doing great work here. He says, there's kids here that don't want to go home. I said, that's what's wrong with society. Yeah. That kids don't want to go home. That's how bad the home is. But I said, what about that kid now? That kid will want to go on to prison because they think it's all right. Right? So the 340,000, if they spend a year there or two years there, there's 680,000. And then they go to Mount Joy Prison for 90,000 euro a year. You're up to a million euro. And highly likely their their peers, their friends, their uh, parents or their, their their siblings have went through that process. So, to, so families... These family cycles are costing millions, you know. Yeah. So you look at my my story. John went to Pat's. John went to Mount Joy, and he would have cost, let's say, up to nearly a million euro. If sport and a person, uh, an inspirational role model for me, Paddy Christie, didn't see the good in me, I would have cost the country that as well. Yeah, and Did you know what your story as well shows the importance of sport. Like when I was mm. growing up, I was big into sport. Timmy mm. would have been very yeah. talented footballer as well. And um, and we would have grown up with people on our team and all, mm. but we would have dropped out. And the lads that stayed in sport, they do well. Like they might have a few shaky ears in their teens and what have you, they might experiment uh, or whatever. But once they stay part of the GA club or the football club or the boxing club, they tend to ride it out, you know. Yeah. But just when the young people drop out of sport, that's when they're in big trouble. What do you think, Tim? Particularly GA. I know a lot of yeah. GA players. It, I think they're more connected. They're, you know, I played soccer a lot. GA wasn't... I would have played when I was younger. But the soccer is more of a social pub thing. Mm. You know, a lot of drugs involved as well. But the GA, I know a lot of GA players at home and I'm friends with a lot of them. And they're more, it's it's more of a real kind of solid sport. You it's know? a different culture. Yeah, like. it's yeah, completely it's different. different. And I think the GA clubs, like our local GA club is St. Vincent's. We have an appear sheet as well now for yeah. same, um, the Glen. And, and they're all kind of the, the big Northside clubs. But the GA invest a lot of money in the clubs. They have second to none facilities mm. compared to yeah. the soccer clubs, you know. The soccer clubs, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to compare them with the GA. But then the GA, they have... Uh, as you know, there's like under fives up to seniors and everything in between. It's a huge community yeah. and they look out for each other, provide jobs for each other. It's just a great thing to be a part of. But unfortunately, me and Timmy didn't. But when I look at the lads who are a part of it, they're doing well today. Now, fellas that grew up in the GA clubs, they're business owners, they're professionals, they're tradesmen, whatever. Yeah. They do really well. So I always say, you know, if people is texting or saying, oh, my son or my daughter is going through a difficult time, they're doing this and that but they're still going to football they're still going to the box and they say just keep them in the sport and they'll read it out you know when when they drop out of the sport kind of we, we'll worry then but if they're you know they're just going through teenage stuff keep them in the sport and, and they'll be fine and and that was your experience too with paddy christie and it just shows as well like if you're a coach you know the importance of mentoring that young person yeah yeah look it's there's so much in that piece like of sport um like I done a, I done a talk down in Knockinahini there last year was it? I think it was last year. This lockdown, you don't know what years you're yeah, in. You know. But um, it was amazing. The the community guards down there uh, set it up, and um, there was the boxing club, athletics, the GA clubs, there was soccer clubs. It was just amazing to see. It was in the school there, and um, it it was brilliant, you know, because uh, it was people, and you know when. When you come up, you come from a working class community. You kind of, you've got this little bit of a, a block, a mental block when guards do things that you don't buy into it. That you go, guards, I'm not, I'm yeah. from, I'm from Ballymore, like, <laughs> you know, I'll be a rat or whatever, like you know. Yeah. But all the all the sports clubs are represented. It was amazing. So it showed how highly the community guard that organised it was held in terms of respect. You know. He wasn't seen maybe as a guard. He was seen as somebody trying to help the sports clubs, and it was it was just brilliant for me. It was it was great, but 
and, and I tell you why I'm trying to make a point around this is that it's important that we realize within a community that it's not about kids picking or go and play Gaelic football or go and play Horn or Camogie or stick with the guy. And that, that's hard for people to listen to coming from a, someone from a guy background. But a kid plays sport, you know, that's brilliant. Regardless of what that sport is, if it's chess, yeah, yes, great. It means you're not taking drugs or committing crime, like you yeah. know. Um, so, so for me, um, that has always been a struggle, especially in Dublin, when you have uh, people competing for uh, people to uh, young young uh, kids to play sport. It's like we need you to play here because we're struggling with numbers. Whereas we need that thought process to change. To once a kid's playing sport, that's great. Yeah. You know, if if somebody from my local hurling club Satanta asked me to go down and do something to help them, I'll do that. And and it's not this thing of I'm not helping you. I'm from Ballymun Kickums. No, mm. I'm from Ballymun, and yeah. I'm going down to help young kids. You know, so the question I would have uh, with that group that we're doing is from the. It's a really interesting thing that I don't have the answer to, and maybe you do. Why did you stop playing sport? And that's where we need to get to it. You know, it's it's what what point did you drop off? And why did you stop? Yeah, Probably you getting know? the better buzz off the drugs. That would yeah. be my thinking around it. <clears throat> because what I was getting from the playing on a football field, the glory of, mm. do you know, well done. Or, you know, yeah, you're getting the buzz. The, yeah. yeah. I was getting something better yeah. from the drugs and the alcohol. And that took me away from all that then, you know. Like but the, it was probably it was probably a bit before that. Yeah. Yeah. That was the was going to be the deciding factor whether you're going to give up sport or not. Yeah, I don't know if it was, and you, you're the, you're it's you. Like it's, it's, mm-hmm. I shouldn't be able to tell you, but but I think my thought process is when someone drops off at sport, it's catching them before they actually got to that stage where they were challenging the buzz from the adrenaline from playing sport compared to the drug. Mm-hmm. It's like when did it happen? Where did it start? Yeah. How do you get? Like the why is actually. It's well before they actually they get to the drugs is the reason they dropped off. Because we, Ballymun Kickham's, Paddy Christie saved a huge amount of kids from that pathway, but there was a lot that didn't get saved. And I always put it down to is, if we had somebody, Paddy done his best, by the way, but if we had somebody within the club that could have seen it a bit earlier and said, I'm going to get this fella here who actually used to play for Ballymun, struggled, not played anymore to speak to this kid who's just about to go that pathway maybe that could be the solution yeah i think what could work there as well in terms of if somebody's dropping off the sport the the initial like the act of not going anymore or quitting that has that has happened months previous or maybe years you know what i mean so then it's about like if the teacher has young philly and young philly's uh missing days in school or he's not present uh, he's he's present physically but not mentally should be red flags yeah, yeah. and linking with the coach and say how is he at training and is it no I come to think of it no he's getting lax with the train he's starting to miss days or he's turning up late or leaving early or he looks yeah. like he's not interested then you get the services involved it saves us 380 grand a year in Town mm. later on like if you put a tiny fraction of that into support from the young person yeah. and the family as well because there's so many sports clubs out there that might have the mindset of especially uh, if you come from an upper class background where there's sporting clubs in the area, that it's seen as a really bad thing. Not help that young lad, kick him out. You know, he's pulling their club down. You know, it's and, and I see that all over the country when I'm doing talks in rural GA communities, that it's seen as like he's the bad egg of this this community, get rid of him. They should be saying, We're the focal point, all the sports clubs, all yeah. the, wherever sport there is, we're the focal point. Sport, we're here to basically help you develop skills, life skills through sport. But we want to wrap around you and make sure you come. And and that is like, that for me is the big thing in terms of changing cultures and changing pathways because I'm an example of that. I had sport to do that for me, like, you know. So I think sports clubs need to realize the impact that they can play in, 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 young young yeah. kids like you know yeah before we wrap up we can't uh not talk about seven all orleans <laughs> like uh as i said you before off camera my father's a dublin dublin man he's from inchy core and he's five brothers draw big dubs fans i was born in dublin myself so i'm a football dublin supporter and a cock uh, Ireland supporter <laughs> <laughs> but I, I i grew up watching dublin you know but i grew up watching dublin and um 
But I suppose when I got to my teens, I felt a bit stupid standing in Hill 16 saying, come on, Dublin with my cock accent, you know, <laughs> so I had to make a decision. Listen, my dad, as I said, he West Belfast and he was screaming, come on, Dublin with a Northern accent, yeah. so I know how you're feeling. Yeah, but uh, do you know what? Um, it's been great talking to you. It's, you're such a humble guy and uh, no, it was a pleasure talking to you. Um, just your book before you go. Yeah. Do you want to just tell a few of our listeners about your book a little bit? Yeah. The end of this. So, so, so the the book is called The Choice, and uh, it was basically uh, the idea was that we'd we'd make a, a kind of a little bit different design wise that you'd have uh, your first half and your halftime talk and your second half. And a halftime talk is when something significant in your life changes the standards of how you live. So I was living my first half up until two thousand and twelve. My brother John passed away in 2012, which gave me my halftime talk. And that basically, reflecting on life and death, gave me a different energy in life to go and to have the purpose in life. But all the components in life, sport, business, anything I had in life to, to go after it a bit more. Not be selfish and kind of, you know, not want to do more in life, you know. Go and achieve the things that people said you probably couldn't. And this is the second half. I'm still in my second half now from 2012 to where I am today. And what I've achieved has been unbelievable, not to brag about, but just because I just thought a little bit differently. So the book is called The Choice. It was the choices John made, the choices I made. And um, the first half obviously is up up until John passed away. Halftime in the book is when John passed away. And then the second half is where till I wrote the book to, to what yeah. I've achieved, you yeah. know. And we yeah. we link the book in the description. Yeah. Thanks, lads. Yeah. Um, again, thanks for hosting us up here on Fingless. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks to you all for watching. Um, thanks for the continued support from our community and beyond. Um, again, there's lots of people contacting us looking for help. Um, we hope we've replied to you all by now and we've linked you in with services in your local community. Um, if you haven't contacted us yet and you're humming and hawing about it, just, just contact us. There's no judgment. We link in with services um you don't have to suffer in silence so with that i say um slan lat thanks again to unity media network for a beautiful production for philly for hosting us and for timmy for being a great co-host so slan thank you this episode is sponsored by local entrepreneur danny o'donovan of quickminutes.com quick minutes is a specialized meeting management application that streamlines the administrative process in running a meeting Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.